you want to get out your message outline and have that out so that you can follow along. The return of the humidifier, it's here. For those just getting to know me, uh, you will know that I have had issues with my voice for many years, so we have a humidifier down here which helps me speak, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. So. We are in Hebrews chapter 2 today, and uh, as you're discovering, Hebrews is a challenging book. It has much to say to us, and it... Uh, doesn't pull any punches, so to speak, and today is no different. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read the first four verses. Please pay much closer attention, as the text says, for this is God's Word. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need it as much as the first congregation needed to hear this message. We understand drifting and we understand distraction. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would press it home and make our hearts believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every family has those classic family stories. And my family has more than its fair share. In fact, there is a virtual plethora, that's an awesome word, a virtual plethora of embarrassing stories to go around. And I think everyone agree, would agree, and by everyone I mean my kids, um, that the best stories belong to their grandfather, my dad. Now, some of you have met my dad and consider him to be the kindly grandfather or great-grandfatherly type, which is true now. But to tell the truth, he did some stuff that makes me look really good. And one of my favorite stories... Uh, was hearing about the times when my father and his friends were growing up in Brooklyn, New York. During World War II, my grandfather, Lieutenant Colonel Wild Bill Silvernail, was stationed at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. And one day, my father and his friend, they must have been about 12 at the time, uh, decided they wanted to be like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. So they built a raft, about eight feet square, grabbed some long poles and pushed off into the Hudson River. 
And everything was going great. And they were having a swell time. When all of a sudden they realized that their poles didn't touch bottom anymore. They had been caught by the powerful current of the Hudson River, and they were out of control and drifting. What had been fun just a few moments before had now become very dangerous as they began passing supply ships anchored in New York Harbor, and they began to drift out into the Atlantic Ocean. Fortunately, one of the ship's captains uh, had spotted them and radioed the Coast Guard, who were able to find them and pick them up a half mile out to sea. <laughs> and standing on the bow of a Coast Guard cutter, they watched the waves smash their little raft into toothpicks. What had gone wrong? They had stopped paying attention to where they were. They didn't realize they no longer had control until it was too late. The powerful current of the river had silently grabbed their raft and was sweeping them out to sea to a sure and certain destruction. And that situation proves to be a powerful description of our lives. There are way more stories about my dad. Someday I'll tell you about when he almost blew up the ammo dump. But... His nickname in Brooklyn was Pretty Boy Floyd. That has to say something. Anyways, this situation of being out of control and drifting, I think, describes many people in our world today. They think everything's fine. They're just having a little fun, convinced they're still in control, or so they thought, only to discover that they've been swept up by the powerful currents of today's society with its emphasis on selfish materialism. And they had drifted away, drifted away from their friends, drifted away from their family, drifted away from their church, and drifted away from Christ. And they had no clue how to get back or how they'll end up. And the waves out there look pretty big. And it's to this dangerous situation that Hebrews 2 speaks. The small, hassled, harassed group of Jewish believers struggling to survive in a Roman world. They have just heard in chapter 1 about the supremacy of Christ. It's been made clear in no uncertain terms that Jesus is better. And the fog of uncertainty begins to lift when all of a sudden this bullhorn sounds out, bellowing across the harbor, beginning in verse 1 with a great warning. A great warning. That's the first blank. And there's a whole ton of blanks in there. There's like a dozen. I kind of went nuts uh, yesterday putting that together. So, good luck. Verse 1, a great warning. So now with the supremacy of Christ ringing in their ears, the writer explicitly sounds his warning to this carried little church, beginning with the words, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the vivid warning given here is um, given in nautical language. It's suggesting the image of a ship whose anchor has broken loose from the ocean floor and is dangerously drifting away. And such 
dangerous drifting is not usually intentional. It just happens. And most of the time it comes actually from inattention or carelessness. And that's precisely the problem with this pressured Hebrew church. They've become so busy, so preoccupied, so careless about their anchor, their moorings in Christ. At first, when the water was calm, no one noticed. But when the storms came up, storms of opposition, storms of ridicule, storms of loneliness, some of them began drifting away from Christ towards the rocks of their old legalistic lifestyle of Judaism. And the experience of that church almost 2,000 years ago intersects our lives today with this warning about drifting. Because it becomes clear that drifting is the most persistent sin of our day among those who belong to the church. To use the old Puritan language, drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And this sin is not so much intentional as it is from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, which is Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. There's no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, broken relationships, broken dreams, broken jobs, broken families, broken report cards, broken finances, the list goes on and on. When those storms come up, people discover that they have left the things of Christ far behind, sometimes out of sight. So what causes such drifting? I'd like to suggest four things that we need to be more careful about. And at first is drifting on the tide of time. Time. The longer you live, the more you see this. Many people who are at one time active in the church, seemingly fine Christians, have somehow imperceptibly drifted away from their earlier better selves. They kept up appearances for a while, but the years have just carried them far from their devotion to Christ. They probably haven't done anything to dramatically disown Christ. They've just let the events of the, the uh, day, the times of their lives, carry them far from their earlier faith. And tragically, their children have no understanding or interest in Christianity. I remember the public resolve of some of my high school and college friends to follow Christ whatever may come. And today I've caught up with a number of them on Facebook. And far too many are no longer walking with the Lord. And I think most of them would probably tell you they're still Christians. But there's little evidence of that. And there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. We all know people who for one reason or another are no longer here. And most of those who are no longer here regularly are probably drifting away. This is the pressing problem of the church today. It's the pressing problem of our church and most healthy evangelical churches that I know of, and I know of a lot. Our churches, including Potomac Hills, are growing on paper, increasing membership. At the same time, we see declining attendance. How can we be increasing and declining at the same time? Because our regulars, meaning most of you, 
Don't come as often as you used to. The folks who were here four times a month now come three times a month. The folks who came three times a month now come twice a month. The folks who um, come once a month still say they attend regularly. But I say they've started to drift. One of the main reasons this is happening is because they've separated, they've disconnected Christ from the body of Christ. They've separated Jesus from his bride, the church. And they think they can follow one without the other. History tells us that's just foolish. Very few people, if any, can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ apart from the community of the saints. I'm sure someone somewhere was able to do this. But a ton of people have tried it, and a ton of people have failed. And they've left the church, and most have lost their faith, and you know some of them. In his well-known book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, I think very wisely um, wrote, <coughs> excuse me, he wrote, <coughs> If you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines, it'll come back, <clears throat> shall be deliberately held before your mind every day. It is why praying and reading the Bible and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Because neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in our mind. It has to be fed. And C.S. Lewis says, as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would have turned out to be reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? He was a wise man, drifting on the tide of time. Another way this happens is because people are drifting on the tide of familiarity. Simply boredom. Whatever we regard as familiar, we treat as commonplace. Think about your first tour of Washington, D.C. Leaves you dazzled. The Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Capitol, the White House, the Library of Congress. I love the Library of Congress. The Smithsonian Museums of Art, Science, History, Air and Space. All leave you wide-eyed and full of wonder. But how do you feel on your 20th tour? You've seen it all before. You get bored. And for some people, familiarity with Christ has become dangerous. When you first knew him, it was new, it was exciting, it was great. But now it's old hat. I know that, I've heard that, I've read that, done there, been, you know, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, quietly drift away. And then there's the very real, very present danger of drifting on the tide of busyness. I think that's the third great tide to watch out for, busyness. Now, John Foster Dulles, 
great statesman, man of legendary busyness. He lived on his jet, practically. So many were his globe-trotting responsibilities as Secretary of State, and it was once suggested that the President should tell him, don't just do something, stand there. And I've wondered if there's some unconscious Freudian irony in the fact that Washington, D.C. named our airport after him. You know, because we who live in the 21st century are busy. We're busy people. There's a multiplicity of cares and duties that overwhelm us. We fill our lives with routines and chores and duties and concerns and have things to do, places to go, people to see. You know, a snowflake is a tiny thing, but when the air is full of them, they can bury you. And probably few of the things we're rushing to do individually are all that big a deal. But you put them all together and it can feel like a landslide. And that's how the thousand cares of each day insulates us from this stupendous knowledge that no matter what, Jesus is better. And we forget that. And we begin to drift. In our day, I think an even greater danger than busyness is we find ourselves drifting on the tide of distraction. So you have four tides. Time, familiarity, busyness, and distraction. Never offline. Those words were on the cover of a recent Time magazine back in September. It sort of was intended to unnerve us with this ominous future of a techno invasion. Computers getting strapped onto us and stuck on us and moving into our watches and into our glasses, attempting to colonize our bodies. Well, the journalists in this article, the two men named Lev Grossman and Matt Della, they explain, we're used to technology being safely other, but the Apple Watch wants to snuggle up and become part of your self. Now, the reality of living with an iPhone or any smart connected device is it makes reality feel a little bit less real. One gets overconnected to the point where the thoughts and opinions of distant, anonymous strangers feel more urgent than those of the loved ones who are in the very same room with you. One forgets how to be alone and undistracted. To never be alone and undistracted is especially alarming in light of the parable of the four soils that Jesus warns us of the spiritual hazards of distractions. Tells us there, Mark chapter 4, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for new technology, so that's actually the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So whether our concerns are in the next room or in the Syrian desert, life can get quickly crowded by any number of cares, anxieties, and desires. The momentary and the transient choke out the infinite and the eternal. 
But your wrist doesn't need to be cuffed to an Apple phone, an Apple watch, an Apple anything. To feel distractions colonizing your life. <clears throat> the average iPhone pings and pushes notifications demand our attention in real time. That thing goes off and we want to check right now. Stop talking. I have to check. And the latest news and chatter and the cares of the world can rob our focus and knock our lives off center and drown out the voice of God. However, we don't often see it when we're in the middle of it. That drifting that comes through these relentless tides of time and familiarity and busyness and distraction often are only realized when the storm hits. And storms tend to hit hard. And we suddenly discover that the anchor is long since let loose. And when the wind picks up, someone we know, an eternal soul, is suddenly shipwrecked on the rocks. No wonder then that this warning is given to us as a powerful command. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Tim Keller says that phrase, much closer attention, uh, literally means that we must be obsessed with what we have heard. And in case we don't get it, then we're given in verse 2 a great message. A great message in verse 2. It says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... First thing we have to ask is, what was the message declared by angels? And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that it was the law delivered at Mount Sinai. If you look in Acts chapter 7, it says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received living oracles to give to us. Later it says, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the second thing we have to ask is, why does every transgression of the law receive a just retribution? And uh, I want to give you three quick responses, or three quick reasons. And the first is, the message was binding. The message was binding. The law is binding. It applies to everybody. There's no excuses. God said it. You better do it. And if God spoke through angels, or if God spoke through Moses, what does it matter? The words are still God's, and you'll still be held accountable for your obedience or disobedience. So you'll be held accountable if the message was broken. Message was broken. You'd be punished if you violated the law. It said, do not steal, and if you stole, you'd be punished. This refers to our transgressions or our sins of commission. Those wrong things that we knew were wrong, but we did them anyway. And second, we'll be held accountable if the message was bypassed. The message was bypassed. You'd be punished if you disobeyed the law. It said, honor your father and mother. And you acted as if that didn't apply to you. Then you'd be punished. And it refers to our unwillingness to obey or our sins of omission. Those right things that we knew were right, but didn't do them. 
So this message, we're told, was great. It was reliable. It's delivered by angels, and it holds you accountable for righteous living. And at this point, you're probably thinking, I'm done. I'm cooked. I got no chance. I've already broken, and I've already bypassed the law more times than I care to admit. It's like the guy who died and was told that he had to climb a great ladder to get to heaven, a giant ladder. And as he climbed up, he had to make a chalk mark on the rungs of the ladder, each rung of the ladder, for the sins that he had committed. And so he started climbing and soon was out of sight. But after a little while, he started coming back down. And when he got to the bottom, the next person asked him, why'd you come back down? He said, I need more chalk. You can't escape the law unless there is provided for you a great salvation. A great salvation. Look at verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is you won't escape if you neglect a great salvation. It said it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So if we have no escape when we ignore the law, how shall we escape now that we're no longer under the law but under grace? We'll only escape by the power of the gospel that we receive salvation in Christ. We receive salvation, his mercy and his grace when we received him Uh, as Lord and Savior, and we receive it every day that we wake up alive. Christ is our salvation, then, now, and always. So let's look again at the text, at these two verses. First, we see the gospel was declared. It was declared. The angels brought us the message of the law, but Christ brings us the message of the gospel, the message of grace, the message of salvation in him for every day of our lives. Christ not only declares the message of salvation. He is the message of salvation. He forgave your sins then. He forgives your sins now. He cleansed you then. He cleanses you now. He loved you then. He loves you now. Everything you need to be acceptable to God has already been given to you in Christ. If you have Christ, then there is nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable To God, it's Christ plus nothing salvation. He declared it, you receive it. It's a great salvation. Second, we see the gospel was attested. We're told not only was this great salvation declared, it was confirmed by eyewitnesses and attested by the lives of those first believers. One of the early church fathers wrote about how this happened. His name was Irenaeus. I know some of you were expecting and Maybe some of you don't even know it yet. Irenaeus is a cool name. Just wanted to let you know that. He's a disciple of Polycarp. It's another awesome name. Who was a disciple of the Apostle John? So these are the words of a third-generation Christian. Listen to what he said. And as Polycarp remembered John's words and what he had heard from him concerning the Lord and concerning his miracles and his teaching having received them from eyewitnesses, so Polycarp related all things in harmony with the scriptures. These things being told me, Irenaeus, by the mercy of God, I listened to them attentively, noting them down not on paper but in my heart, 
and continually through God's grace I recall them faithfully. The gospel is declared in words and attested to with lives. And third, the gospel was witnessed. The gospel was witnessed. This salvation is so great that God witnessed to it uh, himself, or he testified to it. We're using witness here in the sense of a courtroom. As you call a witness to the stand, and he gives testimony. So we're not talking about he saw something. We're talking about he's giving legal testimony in the throne room of God. And it says God, in, in, the, in his whole world, his whole creation, gave witness to himself by the use of signs and wonders, things so great that they revealed the hand of God at work and brought awe and amazement to those who saw them. Miracles so great that they demonstrated the power of God beyond any human ability. And spiritual gifts were given to show this salvation has power in the lives of every believer. This salvation is so great, it was declared by the Lord, attested to in the words and lives of his followers, and witnessed or testified to by the mighty works that were done in, through, and around them by God. And it hasn't changed. Hebrews is going to tell us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all of this leaves us with a really big question. What will you do with what God has said. What will you do with what God has said? And I want to focus in, for the rest of our time, I want to focus in on the area of distraction. Because I think that's the biggest thing in your life and in my life that causes us to drift from the gospel and to think there's something out there better than Jesus. Arthur Hunt, the author of Surviving Technopolis, says, We have reached a period in which all forms of cultural life have surrendered to the sovereignty of technology. We are now under a technopoly, which says absolutely nothing is going to stand in the way of technological progress. We put so much cultural stock in sort of this headlong rush into the future without any clear goal. And the only real goal is it's got to be bigger, faster, and newer. Some of you might ask, what's wrong with that? Well, it advances the notion that our purpose in life is to be a satisfied consumer of material goods. If that's your only purpose in life, you've got a lot to question. You know, and what it's saying is the next big thing is not the coming of God's kingdom but the curved TV screen. In fact, Christians do have a, a clear goal. Theologian David Wells says, our objective in life is to become God-centered in our thoughts, God-fearing in our hearts, and God-honoring in what we do. And this is a society of distraction. If we allow it to overwhelm us and press us into its mold, it will take time away from those things that are central, our focus upon the reality and the presence and the glory and goodness and greatness of God. So in that sense, it becomes a real competitor. I mean, think about it. We get computer pings and beeps all the time. We all understand this. But I think one big question is, what is this doing to our minds when we're living with constant distraction? 
What happens to us when we're in constant motion? When, in fact, we're addicted to constant visual stimulation? What happens to us? It said the average person shifts tasks every three minutes. Half the time we interrupt ourselves. What's this doing to us way down deep inside? Another question is, how do we find times for things that are really central in our lives as Christians? The internet is constantly working to make us highly impatient people. We want to go on to the next thing right now. It can't be too soon before we move on. But the knowledge of God, learning to walk with him through all of the conflicts and anxieties and difficulties and injustices in life, that's a lifelong process. It takes time for this knowledge of God to mature. And we rob ourselves of that if we allow ourselves to be shaped by a culture of distraction. If we lose our capacity to focus, how's God going to be the central organizing thing in our life? How will we be God-centered in our thoughts if our thoughts are fragmented? How will we be God-honoring in our lives if our lives are just bits and pieces of information? That's a big problem. It's a serious problem. Problem. And these are not problems that are unique to Christians. But where do we go from here? How do we handle it? How do we address this? I think the scripture helps us to navigate some of these concerns. How do we protect our time in order to pay much closer attention to what is eternally relevant? I'm going to draw on Arthur Hunt and David Wells, two authors, um, and give us four takeaways to survive life in Technopolis. First is count the cost, count the personal costs. I think the Bible informs us to walk with eyes wide open. To some extent, we should be like the children of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12. It says his men understood their time. We live in a world that's constantly changing and telling us we need this new gadget and what this new device will do for us. We should be asking, what is this new gadget going to do to me personally? What's it going to do to my family, to my community, to my relationship with God? Every gadget comes with benefits. And every gadget comes with relational costs. And it's becoming evident that there are spiritual costs as well. We need to count those costs. Second, we need to master and moderate. Master and moderate. Don't be a passive recipient of technology, but use it to achieve your goals. We need to be masters of our technologies, not the other way around. Uh, we don't need to be the consumer who got consumed. And I'm not telling you this as some super spiritual person who isn't affected by any of this. I'm not telling you this as someone who's mastered all of his electronic toys. And I have a bunch of them, probably more than some of you, I'm sure less than some of you. I own and still use a classic iPod, an iPad 2. I have a new iPhone. I have an old but still working XM radio in my office and a much newer one in my car. I have a Soundworks radio CD player in my home office and an aunt's Bluetooth speaker in my church office. I have a laptop for work, of course, an older desktop, and a really, really old Mac. And at times, all this technological junk seems to take over. 
And at times I just have to walk away. But we're not monks. Completely separating ourselves from technology is not an option for most of us. We need to practice the virtue of moderation or what the Bible calls self-control. We should learn to redeem the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Time is short because we're going to die someday. And therefore, we need to make the best use of our time. Our attention is finite and limited. And we need to create patterns in our life to strategically withdraw from technology or anything else that distracts you from knowing that Jesus is better. That's the second thing, master and moderate. The third thing is to learn to distinguish the significant from the insignificant. We have to sort of get organized on the inside. And if we don't do that, if we can't distinguish between things that are really weighty uh, from those that are superficial, from things that are true, from those that are false, things that matter from those uh, that don't, that we can just brush off, then we're going to be in a world of hurt. Everything gets equal attention. But everything doesn't deserve equal attention. We have to learn to distinguish the significant from the insignificant. You know, and the ability to do that is what the Bible calls wisdom. Now, today we think of wisdom as meaning that you're really smart. But that's not how the Bible uses it. It's really not. It's a heart thing. It's the ability to see life for what it is by our knowledge of God. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, seeing our lives through the light of eternity. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And when you see life in that sort of light, it looks very different than how life looks on the Internet. And the fourth thing is to read real books. And I'm not just saying that because I love books and have a few of them. <laughs> we need to keep using our minds. I've often told people, God gave you a brain. He expects you to use it. And we have to exercise our minds by reading because it forces our minds to understand sentences and follow narratives. And we need those abilities in order to study and know the scriptures. And there's an increasing number of studies. You can do a quick Google search. There's an increasing number of studies that show that reading ebooks affects our brains differently from reading real books, and all in very negative ways. For the health of our soul, we need to get alone, undistracted. Only when we have times of silence can we reorder our lives by the greatest and most relevant news in the universe. And the greatest, deepest, most glorious thing we can know is that God has revealed himself to us in his love and in his holiness. 
Everything else pales into insignificance. And if you focus on all the shiny stuff that glitters for a moment, in the end, you're going to find that your hands are empty. All these verses in Hebrews and this warning at the beginning of chapter 2 are written to a small church filled with people who are pretty scared because life's coming at them pretty hard. And that tiny storm-tossed church is not a hypothetical make-believe place. It's a real church of real people with real problems. They have real bodies. They live in a real place. They face real storms just like us. And under the pressure, some were going with the flow and they're drifting away. And maybe they hadn't outright rejected Christ, they're just ignoring him. But their anchors are up and they're heading into the current and they receive this great warning, do not drift away from such a great salvation. So I have to ask, how's your raft holding up? Because the waves out there look pretty big. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. This morning by your Son, open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you that you love us enough to warn us when we start to drift away. Thank you that you're willing to remind distracted people like us that we have such a great salvation. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe, no matter what's going on in our lives, that Jesus is better. Amen. Amen.